As we take a look back at the 2021 wheat season, challenging conditions in the heart of the wheat belt are top of mind. And yet there were still bin-busting crops harvested across the country. What was the secret to these high-yielding wheat fields? That's today on Field Posts. DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. The results of the National Wheat Yield Contest are in, and the winners represent those producers who were able to roll with the punches during one of the toughest years in living memory. There were definitely surprises, from winners in unusual wheat geographies to unexpectedly good protein levels, but the common thread around intensive management was clear. DTN staff reporter Emily Unglesby joins us today to discuss more of the details around these top farmers and to dig in on conditions, markets, and what might be ahead for the 2022 season. We'll also hear Emily's update from Commodity Classic, where she had a front row seat to some of the latest announcements around weed killing technologies and seed trade advances. We'll dive deep on where the technology is heading and when farmers might be able to start using the latest tools right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent, trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at mydtn.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN staff reporter Emily Unglesby joins us today with updates on a couple of big stories. Emily, let's talk about the wheat yield contest. 2021 was a challenging year for sure on the wheat side, but you brought some exciting stories to us on the national wheat yield contest winners. Give us a kind of the top line overview of that story. Yes. So this was a really challenging wheat production year, 2021. And I was really impressed what farmers got wheat to do for them. Really what it did was overcome some pretty intense climate extremes. We talked with a farmer, John Hofer from North Dakota, Milner, North Dakota, and his spring wheat field got four inches of rain during the growing season. And it somehow eked out 122 bushels per acre, which actually got him a bin buster award for the, in the national Wheat Yield Contest, which is run by the National Wheat Foundation, and they award bin buster um, awards to anyone who yields the absolute highest raw yield in their category. So Hofer got that in the dryland spring wheat field category. And boy, it was dryland, but wheat is just amazing that way. And that was really the theme of the contest. I'm not sure there's a better crop out there for dealing with uncertain climate extremes moving forward. He got those four inches of rain in the smallest doses over the course of the growing season. 
and no corn crop would have handled it. I'm not even sure soybeans could have handled it, but wheat just took those tiny micro doses of water and won him an award in a wheat yield contest in a year when the Northern Plains were really suffering from one of their worst droughts in many years and so much wheat was just completely scrapped. So what a testament to, to wheat's drought hardiness, really. Uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the, you mentioned that was a, on some dry land acreage. Did irrigated acres have a significantly better year or was there still challenges uh, in that? You would expect irrigated acres to really be able to shine because they do have that water source that a dryland farmer doesn't have. But the crazy thing is the heat was so bad and so abnormally high in one of our biggest wheat producing regions in the Pacific Northwest that even irrigated acres really struggled. One of the winners, Stephen Van Grunsven, he is in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, which is normally cool and rainy. And in June, their temperatures went up to 114 degrees. It was so hot that the berry crops that Steve was producing in his fields actually cooked where they sat on the plants in the fields. And he said when you would walk into these fields, it would smell like somebody was cooking jam because the berries had just cooked in 114 degree heat and winds. So even with irrigation in those conditions, I he lost a lot of crops to those conditions. He was fortunate that his winning wheat field had been irrigated right before the worst of the heat. So it was the best protected of all of them. And it, it did go on to um, weather that and hit 192 bushels per acre. It was an irrigated white winter wheat field, which did earn him a bin buster and is actually the highest yield we saw in the wheat contest this year. But I think it's telling that nobody in the contest this year cracked 200 bushels per acre, which they have done for the previous two years. And I think that really is a testament to just how extreme some of the conditions farmers were growing wheat in this year were. And I'm curious what, obviously, quality, uh, protein levels, those kind of factors are always a big part of evaluating a wheat harvest. Were those kinds of numbers impacted by the conditions in 2020? Yes, there were some light test weights, especially in the Northern Plains, where the wheat just couldn't fill out because it just didn't have the rain to do it. There was some sprouting problems in the Northeast where they actually had a pretty good year for producing wheat, but then they got wet right at harvest. So those were issues that we saw. Interestingly, though, high heat and stress on a wheat crop can actually produce pretty high protein levels in a wheat plant, which is good for bakers and millers. They need a certain level of protein. And so we did see that in a lot of the spring wheat entries that the contest got. Ann Osborne, who is the manager of the wheat yield contest, said she was really impressed by how much 14, 15 protein she saw from the spring wheat entries, probably in part because of those conditions. So it's kind of, it's a mixed bag. Heat does make good protein, but it also makes it really hard for wheat to fill out, especially if it's getting that heat during critical grain fill periods. So it, it definitely had an effect. The weather definitely had an effect on quality. It was just a mixed effect. Emily, you've been following the National Wheat Yield Contest for a couple of years now. I wonder, as you looked at winners from this year, given the conditions in particular, any big surprises maybe in terms of geography, where people were located or, or practices or stories that people had in terms of the folks who made those big numbers? That's a good question. I 
think, and I don't know if this is significant just to this year, or if it's more just as the contest grows in participation and in visibility in the industry, we have seen winners coming from more marginal wheat production areas in the country. So especially with the Pacific Northwest being under a lot of weather stress and the Northern Plains being under a lot of weather stress this year, we did see some really strong winning entries from the Eastern Seaboard. And the one that comes to mind immediately is William Willard Farms in Poolsville, Maryland, which is actually right in my backyard. So that was exciting for me. I got to go talk to Scott Poffenberger, who raised this wheat field with Billy Willard Jr. and Joe Sayer. And it was a soft red winter field. And they just got really good. Unlike their their colleagues out west, they got really good growing conditions, plenty of rain, good heat, good harvest conditions. And that really let them shine this year. In the wheat contest, their field hit 141 bushels per acre, which actually got them the Bin Buster Award in their in their category of dryland winter wheat. So that was neat. I'm always excited to talk to people who aren't from the major wheat producing areas because they often have interesting stories. For example, um, William Willard Farms is in Montgomery County, Maryland. That's a region with more than a million people. Just in that county, there's more than a million people. So these farmers, Scott and his his farming team, are they have about 2,500 acres and they're split among dozens of fields. Some of their fields are as small as a few acres. So it's just a very different growing experience than you might get from a Kansas wheat farmer or an Oregon wheat farmer. And that's really interesting. And I like being able to highlight that. And I ha- we have seen as the contest advances, we are getting to talk to farmers in more and more marginal wheat production areas. And I think that's just a really fun and exciting thing for the industry. I'm curious too, as you're out talking to some of these farmers, have you noticed any common threads amongst these kind of top producers in terms of maybe management practices or mindsets or ways that they think about wheat as part of uh, an overall strategy? Any common threads that seem like top producers or all top producers are thinking in X way? Definitely. And I think it's very clear cut and obvious that these winners, these wheat yield winners are just treating wheat like a like a high management crop. They are paying so much attention to it from start to finish. They're very careful about seed selection. They're very careful about seeding rate. They are very careful with their fertilizer. A lot of them are doing multiple soil samples. They're doing tissue samples throughout the year to see what the nutrient levels are in the crop to to actually get fertilizer to the crop exactly when it needs it in the amounts it needs and they are i think another big difference is that they put a lot of pesticide input so you do see fungicides seed treatments insecticides going on the way you would in say a corn crop but it's a little less common for farmers to devote that much attention to wheat and in response the wheat is just, it responds to high management really well. And I think that is pretty much the winning secret is just to actually manage your wheat at the same level that other farmers manage their corn crops. Last couple of questions on wheat here. I'm curious as well how, obviously the the national contest is about yields and production, but a big part of the the story around wheat in 2021 had to do with markets and the prices that farmers were seeing. In terms of having these conversations with farmers who are focused on wheat this year, how much did the market conditions play into the way that they were thinking about their crops? 
So it's going to be a really interesting year for wheat production. I, I did talk to several of the wheat yield winners about what they're thinking their production and their contest prospects might look like this year. And most of them were not feeling too optimistic. And it is true that wheat is a tough crop. It can take a lot of drought. It can take a lot of a lot of frost. It, it just it can take a lot of hits and still perform for you. But we are just starting off with so little moisture in the bank that guys are just there's they're starting off a hundred yards behind the starting line. It's it's going to be a tough year, and it comes at a hard time because we are seeing so much attention on wheat production, so much uncertainty about the global supply, and wheat prices have responded to that here in the U.S. But so many farmers are unable to take advantage of that because it's so risky to forward contract a crop that isn't growing yet or is just coming out and doesn't look great. So I, I do think it's a really challenging year to be a wheat farmer looking at some record price prices and really not being sure that you are going to be able to take advantage of them. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit. You are also just back-ish. Uh, from Commodity Classic. I, I think my first question is just talk to us about the vibe there. First big Commodity Classic back, I'm going to say fully post-pandemic. We had one in 2021 as well. Give us like your feelings and, and sense of how the event went. So the event felt very normal, I, I would have to say. I think that Commodity Classic was running, I think they had about 8,000 people there, which is a pretty good showing. I'm not necessarily up at their record levels, but a very it was a strong Commodity Classic showing. And I have to say, people just seemed like they were back in the swing of things. Companies were prepared to be there. There were lots of little press conferences. There was lots of little announcements. I saw and met so many farmers who were just excited to be there and talking to farmers, other farmers and networking and seeing what the latest and greatest gadgets are coming our way. So it really did feel like a very normal commodity classic. I want to get into talking a little bit about some of those really cool technologies and little announcements that you saw there. What was the most interesting thing you saw? So if I had to pick one, it would probably be BASF unveiled their new smart spraying system, which is a really interesting space for them because BASF is mostly a crops and trait and ag chem company, but they actually have developed with a um, company called Bosch. It's a German engineering and technology company. They've developed a spraying system that uses a series of cameras and lights installed on the sprayer, on the booms, and they have a master control unit that can direct the nozzles to, in milliseconds, detect weeds in the field as it's moving along at up to 12 miles per hour, spray just that weed and then turn off, and come to another weed, spray just that weed and then turn off. And it's actually a dual tank concept. So you could theoretically have one set of nozzles that's broadcasting, say, a soil residual herbicide across the whole field, and then another set of nozzles working from another tank that are spraying a contact herbicide on just the weeds. So the, the goal is to save herbicide, save water, save trips across the field, 
improve weed control. It's a really cool concept. And it's interesting that BASF is in this space. We actually saw something from John Deere very similar. There was an announcement shortly before Commodity Classic their next generation see and spray ultimate sprayer uses the same concept, this idea of spraying in the field, just weeds while the crop is growing. That's the big technology jump here. Instead of just being able to detect weeds when you're on fallow ground, these systems are detecting weeds within crop canopies. That was really exciting to see that there's another option out there. I'll be very interested to see how BASF introduces it to the marketplace, especially going up against big players in equipment manufacturing like John Deere. It will just be a really interesting space to watch. But I have to say it was the most exciting thing I saw. I really think that this is the future. The technology has been building to get us here And I'm just excited to see that we are actually going to see sprayers in the field in the next few years able to spray weeds with this incredible level of precision that the industry has needed and wanted for a long time. Yeah, that is fascinating. I'm curious whether you got a sense of, you alluded to it there at the end, that doesn't sound like anyone's going home with this technology to use in the 2022 season, but it sounds like these things are pretty close maybe to being available to farmers who are at least going to maybe pilot them soon? So it's, yes, the BASF system, which is the only one I'll I'll speak to right now, is they are very still much in the piloting phase. They, I think they have 10 machines running in South America, Europe, and North America right now, but they do expect more to come online in October. So it will be very much sort of an experimental thing for a little bit. And it's really going to hinge on who they can license this software and hardware with and get it to the field quickly, most likely an equipment manufacturer. And I imagine they're in talks with them now. It's hard to say when it will be something that your average farmer in you know, Nebraska can purchase, but the tools are in place for that to be the case, I think, in this decade. And I think that's pretty exciting. Talk to us a little bit about, it sounds like there were some interesting announcements at Commodity Classic as well around some trait advances. Could you talk to us a little bit about what you heard? Sure. Going into Commodity Classic, we knew that all of the major crop trait producers were pretty all in on Enlist E3 technology. So that was expected. And we did see a lot of new Enlist soybean varieties and hybrids being promoted What was most surprising to me was Corteva had a big announcement. They have a new line of corn hybrids for seed and list. So that's interesting to begin with because we haven't seen much in list corn on the landscape in the last few years, even though we knew that trait was out there, that technology was out there. And this new line of hybrids is also using, it's an interesting collaboration among the the major trait providers. So it's the Enlist gene, which is Corteva's, but they have licensed the newest rootworm trait, which is actually an RNAi-based technology from Bayer. So you have these Enlist corn hybrids that have the latest rootworm technology, as well as the latest herbicide technology, all stacked together, as well as some above-ground insect pest traits and some more rootworm traits, too. So it's a very stack-heavy group of hybrids, and I'll be very interested to see who takes them up on those. I think they obviously have a place 
in parts of the Corn Belt where we've seen a lot of rootworm pressure. And of course, Bayer also has their SmartStacks Pro hybrids, which use the same RNAi trait. So we have some interesting rootworm hybrids out there this year. And I'll be interested to see how they perform commercially because we have seen a ramp up in rootworm pressure in the last few years. So these really couldn't come at a better time. Otherwise, Bayer has a really cool project moving forward called Short Stature Corn. And they have just developed, it's with a non-biotech trait. So these are natively bred hybrids. They are only about five to seven feet tall at the end of the season, but they've worked really hard to make sure they're producing the same number of nodes, which means you get the same number of leaves and then similarly sized ears of corn to their taller version, to the taller, the more normal tall corn plants. So they're running a lot of trials with these new short stature corn plants. And their goal is they think there will be two big benefits. The first one is obvious. A shorter corn hybrid is hopefully going to be much less susceptible to green snap and lodging, which are real problems, especially when farmers face sort of extreme climate events, the derecho we saw in Iowa a couple years ago. So that's the first benefit. The second benefit they're hoping to explore is that because these hybrids are so much shorter, you should be able to get into the field with your equipment much later in the season and maybe do more targeted fungicide and fertilizer applications than you would be able to do with a normal hybrid. And they're really interested to see if they can actually see real advantages from that at the end of the day in yield. So they have these hybrids out on fields this summer with about 200 farmers. And next year, they're going to expand it to their Groundbreakers field trial program. And I just think we're going to start to see some really interesting data and experiences coming in from these short corn traits. And I'm just really excited to watch them and see how they perform. You can read more about the National Wheat Yield Contest winners and check out Emily's reporting on Commodity Classic, Weed and Seed Tech, and much more at DTNPF.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Emily Unglesby. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.